This is the Feminine Podcast, the official podcast of Feminine, discussing all things femme, a little bit of EM, and everything in between. I'm Jenny Beck Esme, Editor-in-Chief of Feminine. I'm very excited to bring you our next piece of Fix 19 content. This is from Dr. Kat Vogel. It's called Uncomfortably Numb, The Impact of Alcoholism. And yes, you're right, that is a heavy title. This talk really doesn't need much introduction from me because Kat is an extraordinary speaker and she tells an extraordinary story. Dr. Ogle is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at George Washington University. She loves blending ultrasound and education and often even brings her son with her to teach at the medical school. She's a tremendous mom on top of everything. Actually, before we get into her Fix 19 talk, Kat wanted to join me for a second to tell you why she's so excited for virtual digital Fix 2020. Kat, what do you have to say? Hey, this is Kat Ogle, and I am here to tell you that you do not want to miss Fix 2020. This lineup of speakers and workshops is so incredible. I'm having a hard time deciding which ones I'm going to go to. For me, Fix and Feminine has always been a transformative experience, and I think that you'll find the same thing. So don't miss it. You heard it from her. Head on over to the website and get your tickets today. Workshop assignments are happening. You want to get that ticket so you get the right workshop for you. Without any further ado, let's get to Dr. Ogle's fantastic Fix 19 piece. So I'd like to make a disclaimer that this is not my walk-up song, but this is a song to set the tone. childhood was a blend of Leonard Skinner, Led Zeppelin, and Pink Floyd. Add the crash of broken glass, the rhythm of sobbing, and the interminable vibration of tension and fear. This is my stepfather. He's a cool dude, was a cool dude, and he came into my life when I was four years old. My mother was enamored with him, and I loved him with the exuberance of a child. I was also four years old the first time he laid his hands on me. I had just finished taking my bath, I was brushing my hair, and I was distracted by the TV. He had been drinking, and he had decided that I wasn't brushing my hair fast enough. And he seethed with anger. And I willed my little hands and my brush to comply with his demands to go faster. He lunged at me. He lifted me up by my wet locks, and he launched me into the wall. That incident planted the seeds of fear in my psyche. And his continued watering it with alcohol and abuse forced those seeds to take root. Imagine the emotional storm I felt. I was feeling physical pain, as well as the betrayal of trust from this man who I thought was there to care for and protect me. He further muddied the waters when he would come at me with such guilt and remorse and just heartfelt apologies 
he would talk about the monster inside of him. And somehow, the pain in his eyes, the torment that he felt, I somehow felt responsible for. I felt sorry for him. And when he begged for my forgiveness, I willingly gave it. And when he promised me he would never do it again, I believed him. Each time he broke that promise, the marks he left on my body were well covered by clothing. He was careful about that, even when he was drunk. My childhood faded away, and pieces of me with it. And I was 15 years old the last time it happened. My mother was also the recipient of his rage. Tension would build, and an argument would ensue, something he perceived that she had done to wrong him. The struggle would happen, and then I would hear the sound of his fists and open hands on her body. And then finally, her sobbing. What followed were his sobs, his grieving, his guilt, his remorse, and tenderness. The next step was the cleanup. My mother would walk around the house, pick up the broken things, ice her bruises, and go to bed. The next day, she would get up, get ready for work, pull out her makeup, and like a skilled artist, she would erase the evidence, the bruise on the cheek, the black eye, the fat lip. After that, she would put on her neatly pressed and brightly colored outfit. And the last touch was her smile. My mother had the most beautiful smile. So that was the anatomy of our chaos. Tension building, explosion, apology, cleanup, honeymoon, over and over and over again. When I was preparing for this talk, I tried to find some hard data about physicians who are survivors of child abuse, physicians who are the children of alcoholics, or physicians who have survived intimate partner violence. When I wasn't finding much, I sought out the help of a friend who's a resource librarian. And between the two of us, we found that there's a fair bit of data with regard to the impaired physician, the one who's drinking or using, but there's very little about the lived experiences of physicians like me. When I was 12 years old, our family of five was cramped into an 800-square-foot apartment, ages 2 through 35. Now, for you New Yorkers, 800 square feet probably sounds like a luxurious <laughs> amount of space. But for us, it was suffocating under the weight of alcoholism and continued abuse. The front door slammed. It startled me awake and our paper-thin walls served as the perfect acoustic window 
for me to listen to this performance. I didn't want to hear it, but the fear that was so deeply ingrained in me left me paralyzed in my bed and trembling. My hands sweaty, my mouth dry, and tears welling up in my eyes knowing what was about to happen again. His growls served as the bass, and my mother's pleas were the violin. Follow the broken glass for the cymbals, all a prelude to the incessant staccato of his fists and open hands impacting my mother's body. I heard him land every blow. I felt each one in the depth of my soul, and there was nothing I could do about it. In a lull of symphonic activity, I thought we had reached the finale for the night and took a breath. And that's when I heard my stepfather plunge to the deepest depths of darkness and despair, and he told my mother that he was going to kill her. And then himself. I had a moment of clarity, and I realized that no matter what I feared from my stepfather, I was not about to let this happen. So I got up, I snuck out of my room, across the hallway as they struggled on the stairs below me to the left. I opened their bedroom door, I went into the closet, slid the door open, and I put my 12-year-old fingers around the cold metal double barrel of the shotgun that was kept there. It was heavy, and I had to lift it stealthily. So I took a breath, picked it up, crept back across the hallway, and I buried it in the closet under a mountain of stuffed animals. My heart stopped when I heard the sound of metal on metal in the next room. He was fumbling with shotgun shells and the barrel of a gun. I didn't know that we had two guns. Growing up in an alcoholic and abusive home taught me to overcompensate and overperform to create a smoke screen to hide my family's dirty little secret. I didn't want people to know where I came from, and that persisted throughout my training as a nurse, medical school, residency. I didn't want my peers to judge me, and there are still times in the emergency department today where I hear judgmental and underhanded comments about patients who come in struggling with alcoholism, struggling with intimate partner violence, and child abuse, and it stings. What would they say about me? What would they think about me? There are several things that I want you to take away from this talk. The first is that alcoholism is a unique experience. There are layers of complexity that you cannot begin to understand unless you have lived these experiences. And for all of my stepfather's faults, I did love him. 
Sometimes we offer oversimplified solutions to our patients without considering how complex their experience is. So trying to understand their story and asking for their narrative is such an important part of making that connection. Second, the studies that I found were predominantly focused on cis female victims in heterosexual partnerships. And frankly, we need more inclusive studies that really look at the physician experience and how this is impacting our physician workforce. I'm not alone. I'm standing up here in this room of supportive people, but I know that I'm not the only one. We need, we need to study this. We need to understand this experience. And if you have a story like mine, when you're ready, you should share it. Third, we've talked a lot in this conference about explicit and intrinsic bias. And I think that this is another example where our explicit and intrinsic bias has great potential to enhance our therapeutic doctor-patient relationship or destroy it. Are you going to help your patient break down the wall? Look around the room. Your friends, your colleagues, your students, your mentors, any of the people in this room could have been impacted like me. Be careful with the words you choose. Be kind, thoughtful. You never know who's listening and whose life you may impact. Now, 31 years later, I can tell you by pure luck or divine intervention, I took the gun for which we had shells. My mother is alive and well, and she is no longer married to my alcoholic stepfather. He is sober. I am a physician, I am a mother, and I am a survivor of alcoholism and abuse, and this is my story.